You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Clash of Minds, Episode 2, with Walter Feit. I've titled this Righteousness by Faith in Verity. I think we are living in very, very serious times. And as we discussed in the previous section, the world is very, very close of making a choice that we have no other king other than Caesar. And when the world makes that choice, then we will have reached the same position that the Jews reached just before their probation closed. And so we need to understand what righteousness by faith really means. And why we are the ones who should be preaching this more than anyone else. A few months ago, Tony Palmer attended a meeting with evangelicals and there it was claimed that Protestantism had basically reached its end with the signing on the Joint Declaration on Justification by Faith. And since then there have been major movements and the evangelical churches and the charismatic movement have met with the papacy and they've come to the conclusion that it's better to move towards unity. And the Joint Declaration on Justification shows that Catholicism and Protestantism are basically on the same page. Now, is this really the case? Or is it not the case? And we need to understand this issue because this is the pivotal issue around which the final events will culminate. It's a very, very serious issue. There is a true righteousness by faith. There is a false righteousness by faith. And there is a syncretistic righteousness by faith, which seems to have the stamp of approval in the biblical sense. But in actual fact, being syncretism, it is truth mixed with error and is more poisonous than blatant error. If we do not understand this issue, then we might just miss the point and choose no other king but Caesar. So what is righteousness by faith? And why is the title righteousness by faith in verity? In order to resolve this, we will start with biblical righteousness by faith, and we're going to concentrate on justification. We're not going to concentrate on sanctification. Sanctification is important, and we will mention it, but we're going to concentrate on justification because that is what the Joint Declaration is all about. Philippians 3, 9, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, 
but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So this is a very essential religious theological issue. Christ and his righteousness, we read in Spirit of Prophecy, Ellen White, Review and Herald, August 31, 1905. Christ and his righteousness, let this be our platform, the very life of our faith. We have to preach the righteousness of Christ. Now as Seventh-day Adventists, we are known as the people of the law. And the law is essential if we want to understand the righteousness that comes from Christ. Because if you separate the law from Christ, if you separate it from salvation, then you miss the point and you don't understand the fullness of the everlasting gospel. So righteousness by faith is our platform. If we go to Isaiah chapter 11, we find the work that the Holy Spirit is to do in the lives of people and in our lives. And this work is embodied here in this description of what the function was in Jesus Christ himself, which is the ultimate explanation of what, what it entails. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. It is the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That is the definition of what the Spirit is about. And never, never will you find that the Spirit bypasses the understanding. The understanding is part and parcel of the Spirit. And knowledge and wisdom. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. How often does the word righteousness appear there? So this is an essential component of the work of the Spirit. Today the world is seeking a different Spirit, an experiential Spirit. But the true Spirit will never bypass understanding and knowledge and wisdom and counsel. Now if we go to Revelation chapter 14, where we have the three angels' messages. And we come to the third angel's message. It reads as follows. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, 
The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This is the most serious warning in the New Testament regarding the final events on this planet. If you receive the mark of the beast, then you will suffer the consequences and it will be without mixture. So what will not be mixed into the cup? There's no mercy. So there's no mercy mingled with the wrath. No mercy. Because you've made a decision to reject God and to accept the mark of the beast. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Day or night who worship the beast and his image, whosoever receiveth the mark of his name, they shall not enter into his rest. They have no rest. They've missed the point what it means to rest in God. And here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So this message is the final message of warning to go to the entire world. And there's one church in particular that preaches this message worldwide, and that's the Seventh-day Adventist church. And it applies this message to the mark of the beast, which the beast itself claims is Sunday worship. And the reformers had no problem in identifying the beast as the papal system, and they used the prophecies of Daniel to base their exegesis on. So once you've come to the rest and the warning against the mark, here are the, the patience of the saints, here are those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So this is the preaching of the Sabbath and the entire law, but it has to do with rest. So if we go to the biblical doctrines that are preached by this church, then we find a few landmark biblical doctrines. We read in the Spirit of Prophecy, the passing of the time in 1844 was a period of great events opening to our astonished eyes the cleansing of the sanctuary. Transpiring in heaven and having decided relation on God's people upon the earth, the first and second angel's messages and the third unfolding the banner on which is inscribed the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So embodied in the three angels' messages, you have the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. One of the landmarks under this message was the temple of God, seen by his truth-loving people in heaven, and the ark containing the law of God. So the law is part and parcel of this message. The light of the Sabbath, of the fourth commandment, flashed its strong rays in the pathway 
of the transgressors of God's law. The non-immortality of the wicked is an old landmark. I can call to mind nothing more that can come under the head of the old landmarks. So the old landmarks, the very reason why this church came into existence was to preach the three angels' message, to uplift the law of God and to put the Sabbath back into a right setting. Seventh-day Adventists have been chosen by God as a peculiar people separate from the world. By the great cleaver of truth, he has cut them out of the quarry of the world and brought them into connection with himself. He has made them his representatives and has called them to be ambassadors for him in the last work of salvation. The last work of salvation. The greatest wealth of truth ever entrusted to mortals. The most solemn and fearful warnings ever sent by, man, by God to man have been committed to them to be given to the world. In a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. To them. On them is shining wonderful light from the word of God. They've been given the work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and third angel's message. There is no other work of so great importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. Now we've read this many, many times, but it seems that we have to read it many more times before we will finally get the message. This is our job. And nothing else must occupy our attention. It is the most important message that the world has ever received and it's entrusted to us to give this message. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 365. Concerning the law proclaimed from Sinai, Nehemiah says, Thou camest down also upon Mount Sinai and spakest with them from heaven and gavest them right judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments. Quoting Nehemiah 9. And Paul the apostle to the Gentiles declares, The law is holy and the commandments holy and just and good. Quoting Romans. This can be no other than the Decalogue, for it is the law that says thou shalt not covet. While the Saviour's death brought to an end the law of types and shadows, it did not in the least detract from the obligation of the moral law. On the contrary, the very fact that it was necessary for Christ to die in order to atone for the transgression of that law proves it to be immutable. Now there are a few points here that I have to point out that are very important. Because the whole issue of salvation and atonement is changing in the world today. And what we are reading here is totally the opposite of what Catholic doctrine stands for regarding this issue. The opposite. Now the question that I have is this which stands here in line with Protestant doctrine? And if it is in line with Protestant doctrine, which Protestant doctrine? Early Protestant doctrine or present-day Protestant doctrine? Because, you see, doctrine can change. And times change. But I don't believe that Rome ever changes. So something must have changed. And if we don't understand the issue of righteousness by faith, 
and the relationship of law and grace, then we will be swept away and take the pen and ask, where must we sign? And when we sign that document, then we are as verily saying, we have no other king but Caesar. That's signing away your salvation. And if you do it for your church, then you are saying, his blood be upon me and upon my children. This is a very serious issue. You see, we live in a world where the religious Protestant world wants to separate law and grace. You cannot separate law and grace because then you lose the issues that pertain to salvation. Because it says here, the very fact that it was necessary for Christ to die in order to atone for the transgression of that law proves it to be immutable. Where there is no law, there's no transgression. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. If there's no transgression, there's no need for grace. So I cannot be without, I cannot be under grace if there is no law. This is Adventist position. So the law stands. The law is immutable. The law sentences me to death. I am a sinner doomed to die. Who will pay the price for me? Nobody can pay the price for someone else's sin. Except him or he in whom we are corporately present. So in Adam all die. Because everybody was corporately in Adam when Adam sinned. Is this logical? And when Adam sinned, his entire prosperity could only inherit that which he had to pass on to his posterity. And that was mortality. So his posterity was doomed to die. He also couldn't pass on a a system of righteousness because he had sold his righteousness. So all he could pass on to his posterity was a propensity to sin. So we are all born to die and we all have a propensity to sin. No man can pay the price. No angel can pay the price. The only one who could pay the price is the one in whom Adam was before he was. And who's that? That's God. That's God. So in other words, all humanity was corporately in God before Adam was created. So the only one who can pay the price corporately for humanity is God. So if Jesus is not God, then I am still in my sins. Because no man can die for someone else and no man can raise someone from the dead unless he has life 
within himself can lay it down and take it up and give it to whomsoever accepts this gift of salvation. Now it says here that Jesus had to die because the law was immutable. So the law and the immutability of the law is the reason why Jesus had to die. Now, that's the Adventist position. It's also the biblical position. Now, what is part of this message? Health reform, the right arm of the third angel's message. When properly conducted, the health work is an entering wedge. Making a way for other truths to reach the heart. When the third angel's message is received in its fullness, health reform will be given its place in the councils of the conference, in the work of the church, in the home, at the table, and in all the household arrangements. Then the arm will serve and protect the body. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Know ye not that the body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and you are not your own. For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Does God want us to take care of our bodies? Yes. yes. Why would he have a care about that? Who designed this body? God designed this body. So who knows what this body requires? God knows what it, what it requires. So he's written it in his Bible. He tells us what our diet was, what we are designed for, and he's given it to the prophets, and he's put it into his typologies, and he's given it as a special gift, a health message to the final church. You feel a deep interest in the circulation of the health publications, and this is right? But the special branch is not to be made all-absorbing. The health reform is as closely related to the third angel's message as the arm to the body. But the arm cannot take the place of the body. The proclamation of the third angel's message, the commandments of God, and the testimony of Jesus is the great burden of our work. The message is to be proclaimed with a loud cry, and it is to go to the whole world. The presentation of health principles must be united with this message, but must not in any case be independent of it, or in any way take the place of it. Okay. So the health message is part of the third angel's message. Am I right? It's part of the right arm. Testimonies, volume 5. New believers to have a clear understanding. As the end draws near, and the work of giving the last warning to the world extends, it becomes, what does it say there? More important for those who accept present truth to have a clear understanding of the nature and influence of the testimonies which God in his providence has linked with the work of the third angel's message from its very rise. All right. So the third angel's message is not just, don't accept the mark of the beast, you must keep the Sabbath. The third angel's message is much more than that. 
We can see that the, the entire health message is associated with the third angel's message. The entire spirit of prophecy is associated with the third angel's message. In ancient times, God spoke to men by the mouth of prophets and apostles. In these days, he speaks to them through the, by the testimonies of his spirit. There was never a time when God instructed his people more earnestly than he instructs them now concerning his will and the course that he would have them pursue. Never a time. So God wants us to make this part and parcel of the message. Not to make it less prominent, not to make it a sideline issue, but to make it part of the third angel's message. Several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message, and I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. This is the message. Did you get that? Righteousness by faith is the message. That's the heart of the message. What are the components of the message? The commandments of God? The Sabbath in particular? The health message? The spirit of prophecy? And those must be incorporated into the very essence of the message, which is the third angel's message in verity, righteousness by faith, justification by faith. All right? So, people say, you Adventists, you are legalists. You say you must keep the commandments of God. You're legalists. We answer, no, we do not keep the commandments in order to have any stature with God. We keep the commandments as a consequence of his saving grace. He saves me and he brings me into a relationship with himself. Now Jesus, does he force himself upon you? Doesn't the Bible say, I stand at the door and I knock? Alright? So what's my job in this whole plan? Open the door. That's my plan. That's my only, my only job. Open the door. And then what does he do? He comes into what with you? Sup with you. Now if you go and eat with someone, we discussed it in the previous talk, then you have a relationship with that person. And because you have allowed him to come in, it means you have given him the permission to transform you. Now who does the transforming? Do you want to be made whole? Who does the transforming? He does. He does. Now what's the evidence that I opened the door? What's the evidence? Delight to keep, do his will. Yes, doing his will. Now who does his will? Is it me who does it? Or is it me who permits him to do it in me? The ladder. 
because I cannot contribute in any way to my salvation. So the fact that I open the door and I let him in means I give him permission to do his will in me. So when a book of remembrance is written and the book is opened and the book of remembrance is read to the angelic host one day, will it say there how great we all were? Or will it merely say what we permitted God to do in us? That's righteousness by faith. I accept it. And the fruits of righteousness are doing the will of God. All right, now let's unpack that a little bit. So if I accept the righteousness of Christ, and righteousness just means doing what is right, and he's the perfect divine power in this righteousness who justifies me and then through sanctification and his indwelling work in me transforms that which was my tendency into his tendency. Now, if I say I don't want to keep the commandments, have I accepted him by faith? Have I opened the door? All right, let's go one step further. If the message is righteousness by faith, in verity the third angel's message, on which is inscribed the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, if I refuse the health reform message, excuse me, help me, can I, can I accept part of his righteousness or must I accept it all? Alright, now if he wants to, bring me back to that which he intended in the first place, being created in the image of God, that includes the package deal of the, the spiritual as well as the physical, doesn't it? Now what if I say, alright, I'll, I'll let you work, but I don't accept the instructions you've given in the spirit of prophecy. If it's associated with the third angel's message, and the third angel's message is righteousness by faith in verity, then what am, I, what am I refusing? His righteous instruction. I'm refusing his righteous instruction. So this is a very serious issue. And this should make everyone who has ever been part of this message sit up and say, excuse me, does this mean that God wants all of me? Or can I uh, hold back? It presents an uplifted Savior. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior. The sacrifice, please listen to the wording, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith in the surety it invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in the obedience to all the commandments of God. All the commandments of God. So if I accept righteousness by faith, and I don't permit God to change that which is my carnal nature, 
then I haven't accepted righteousness by faith. So I cannot separate obedience and law from righteousness by faith. I cannot be under grace and not be under law. I must be both. So the principles of the Ten Commandments, Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 1, existed before the fall and were of a character suited to the condition of a holy order of beings. After the fall, the principles of those precepts were not changed, but additional precepts were given to meet man in his fallen state. A system was then established requiring the sacrificing of beasts to keep before fallen man that which the serpent made Eve disbelieve, that the penalty of dis disobedience is death. The transgression of God's law made it necessary for Christ to die a sacrifice. Now you're wondering, excuse me, why are you highlighting that? Don't we all know that? Well, we might know it. This is Adventist doctrine. I tell you too that it's biblical doctrine. But Catholicism doesn't teach that. And we need to know that. We need to understand that. So it was necessary for Christ to die. The transgression of the law made it necessary for Christ to die, a sacrifice, and thus make a way possible for man to escape the penalty and yet the honor of God's law be preserved. The law... And the sacrifice on the cross are linked with everlasting chains. If I take the law out of the issue, where there is no law, there is no transgression, the entire plan of salvation shatters because there is no need for a cross. Are you with me? And if there is no need for a cross then my salvation must be possible by some other way than the sacrifice on the cross. And then it's no longer righteousness by faith in the Son of God who paid the price for me. Then there's another way. It's the way of Cain, but not the way of God. This is a very serious issue. And we're going to deal with the joint declaration where people take up a pen and sign a joint declaration with organizations that believe that this was not necessary. This is a very, very serious issue. So, we know now that the law and the sacrifice, according to the spirit of prophecy, are linked and cannot be separated. Because at the cross, mercy and justice kissed each other. Justice demanded the death penalty. And Christ, having mankind corporately in him, paid that price so that I can be set free if I accept the gift of salvation and allow him to change me so that the old man dies and the new man is resurrected in him, and it is not I that live, but he that lives in me. Isn't that biblical? All right. Let's make sure we have this straight. Because when we come to the false, 
we have to make sure that we stand on the foundation of the Word of God. Galatians 3.13 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law is the death penalty. Being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come into, unto the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Colossians 1, 12. Giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of every creature. So how do we have redemption in Jesus? According to the Bible. Through his blood. Was his death necessary? Yes. Why? Because he took the curse of the law, the death penalty, upon himself. For it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. So he was fully God, and he had to be, because if he wasn't God, he couldn't pay the price for me. And having made peace through the blood of the cross, he had to die. By him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through his death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. The only way I can be unreprovable and unblameable in his sight is if I'm covered by his righteousness. If you continue in the faith, can I fall away? Can I turn my back on that righteousness? Yes, I have a freedom of choice. He's not going to force me. So it's not once saved, always saved. Grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Hebrews 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. So he's the creator, right? Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, is he therefore the recreator as well? Okay. Sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So the Bible is quite clear. We're saved through the blood. The death on the cross pays the price that is for me. He is the creator. I had no part in the creative act. 
because Adam wasn't even there when everything was created. And when he was created, he was fully formed. He had no part in it. And likewise, he will have no part in the recreative act. This is very important because we will see that there is this dichotomy of thought. So he paid the price for redemption as well. Now, manuscripts release, 548, the wrath of God. These are all essential components because we will see that Rome has the opposite view. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. These words show us why God's wrath descended on his only begotten Son. Why the innocent suffered for the guilty. Why the just bore the punishment wholly due to the unjust. Jesus came to bear the penalty of man's transgression, to uphold and vindicate the immutability of the law of God and the rectitude of his government. He came to make an end of sin and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Is that in accordance with biblical doctrine? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the wrath of God fell upon Jesus. Catholicism will say, okay, so God the Father now hates the Son. Excuse me. Excuse me. Is that biblical doctrine? Doesn't Jesus say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? The Father and I are one. So this is a joint decision, isn't it? It's not two separate entities here deciding that I'm going to smack you because of whatever reason and uh, I suddenly hate you. No, God hates the sin. He never hates the sinner. So how much more so will he hate the sin that Christ took upon himself that squeezed out the life out of his beloved son? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. All right? So the wrath of God falls upon the sin that Christ took upon himself. But he being without sin himself didn't, couldn't be held in the grave. So he rose from the dead. And anyone who allows him to change us, who allows him to change you or me, will be part of that resurrection. The Son of God, undertaking to become the Redeemer of the race, placed Adam in a new relation to his Creator. He was still fallen, but a door of hope was opened to him. The wrath of God still hung over Adam, but the execution of the sentence of death was delayed, and the indignation of God was restrained because Christ had entered upon the work of becoming man's Redeemer. Christ was to take the wrath of God. This is Adventist doctrine. Which injustice should fall upon man, he became a refuge for man, and although man was indeed a criminal deserving the wrath of God, yet he could by faith in Christ run into the refuge provided and be saved. In the midst of death there was life if man chose to accept it. We must understand this. 
So let's go back to the Bible. We always want to make sure we're, we're in harmony with the Bible. So he that believeth on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. And the two believeths are slightly different. The one is pastua, which is to have faith in, upon, or with respect to a person or thing, that is credit by implication to entrust, especially one's spiritual well-being, to Christ, to commit, to put yourself in Christ. So he that believeth on the Son is he who hands himself over to God. And he that believeth not is a different word, a pateo, it means to disbelieve or not to believe or to be disobedient and to obey not. So if you obey not and you disbelieve, then you will not see life. So that's a choice, either one or the other. To break down the barrier that Satan had erected between God and man, Christ made a full and complete sacrifice. Revealing unexampled self-denial, he revealed to the world the amazing spectacle of God living in human flesh. Doesn't the Bible say he was God manifest in the flesh? Unless, of course, you have a new translation. And sacrificing himself to save fallen men. What wonderful love. As I think of it, I weep to think that so many of those who claim to believe in Christ are encrusted with selfishness, living for self, they know not their Savior. Oh, that they had more faith, more love, if they entered into God's work in the Spirit of Christ. If they knew the power of his grace, they would be imbued with holy zeal. They would labor earnestly to give the Lord's workmen in needy, difficult fields every possible advantage. With their prayers and with their means, they would compass sea and land to establish memorials for God. So we must rest in this work. We had no part in it. Only the Creator God can establish it. Six days shall your work be done, but on the seventh day there shall be to you a holy day, a Sabbath of rest. To the Lord, whoever does work therein shall be put to death. That's why we discussed the importance of the Sabbath in the previous presentation. For God has not appointed us to wrath. It says in Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So yes, you will die, but God doesn't want you to die. He doesn't want you to die, because he died for you. He wants you to accept this rest, and to rest in his completed work, and to allow him to complete the work in you. He shall cover you with his wings. He's the refuge, Romans 5. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also join God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. That's a big word, this katalega. Exchange, figuratively adjustment, that is restoration to divine favor, atonement, reconciliation. So the NIV actually uses the word reconciliation, but atonement is, is so much deeper because atonement includes 
blood. Includes the blood. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, in this case, Paul uses the perfect passive verb to describe a completed justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The perfect passive in the Greek denotes a past event which has an abiding <coughs> result. But we've seen, once saved, not always saved. But if you are justified, it is a judicial decree. It is a legal precept. This person is just because he is covered by the righteousness of Christ. It's a legal decree. So in Romans 3, verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption, that's the ransom, that is in Christ Jesus. So this justification is this legal act of Christ covering me with His righteousness. I am by no means perfect. I am a fallen being with a propensity to sin. But I have accepted Christ as my personal Savior and opened the door and asked Him to come in. And this very act of accepting by faith His righteousness covers me legally. Amen. Then comes the process of sanctification, which is the work of a lifetime. And God looks at the tendency of the heart and the will to emulate Christ. And he works with my nature, transforming it imperceptibly. I will never notice it, and I will always see his righteousness and myself in my patheticness. But even justification is laying man's glory in the dust, so that I cannot claim any part of it it is wholly His. And why I need it is because I am pathetic. Romans 3.25 Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation There's that great word Hilasterion Through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. I've got nothing to boast. By what law? Of works. How can I do works if I'm dead? To be justified, I can't do anything. It's a gift. Nay, by the law of faith. And this great word, now this is what's so fascinating about the Bible, this great word, propitiation, hilasterion. Listen to what it means. It means an atoning victim, but it can also mean the lid of the ark, the mercy seat. And he uses that same word to translate it into that very word. Psalm 17 verse 8, Keep me as the apple of the eye, hide me under the shadow of thy wings. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God, Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. 
This is this metaphor for his justification. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings thou shalt trust. His truth shall be thy shield and thy buckler. And then Hebrews 9, Paul uses these words, and over it the ark of the covenant, the cherubim, the glory shadowing, the mercy seat. The same word, illustrium, for the propitiation of our sins of which we cannot now speak particularly. And on the Day of Atonement, the blood was sprinkled on this mercy seat. So this mercy seat in pure gold shields me from the wrath of God. And it was 1.5 cubits high, and the grid of the sacrificial altar was 1.5 cubits high, the justice of God which demanded the death of the Lamb is as high as the mercy that shields me from the law's condemnation. It's a marvelous system. And above the ark, the two angels looking down with wonder at the mercy seat that God should have paid this price so that I can live. So, can we agree that the biblical doctrine of the death of Christ on the cross and his blood, and Hebrews says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, tells us that the law is immutable, cannot be removed, and therefore the penalty was paid by Jesus Christ. The law condemned me to death, but thank God the mercy seat shields me from that wrath. And God took that wrath upon himself when he took all my sin upon him, and it crushed the life out of the Son of God, and by his blood, which was sprinkled on the mercy seat, I'm saved. Biblical doctrine, yes or no? Okay. Here's the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 60. How are you righteous with God? Answer. This is the reformer's faith. Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, so that though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them, and am still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding God without any merit of mine, but only by mere grace, grants and imputes it to me. The perfect satisfaction, righteousness and holiness of Christ. Even so, if I ever had had nor committed any sins, yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me, inasmuch I embrace such benefit with a believing heart. I can say amen. I can say amen. That's reformed faith. So Adventism stands firmly on the reformed faith. Now, modern Protestantism wants to remove the law. And then the whole, the whole plan of salvation collapses. Because if the law is go gone, then there's no transgression. Then God needn't have died. Then we come close to Catholic doctrine. So it is transformed Protestantism that can lead Protestantism to a joint declaration with Catholicism. 
Let's just make sure. Martin Luther. Why did you believe Martin? It's no, no secret that I like Martin Luther. Eh? Just in case you didn't remember, I like Martin Luther. Martin Luther maintained that this truth was the difference between a standing and a falling church. If a church upholds the truth of justification by faith alone, we're talking about justification by faith, we're not talking about sanctification, okay? Then in Luther's judgment it was a standing church. If they did not, then it was a falling church. The importance of the truth of justification by faith alone is also evidence in the fact that the two creeds which arose out of the Reformation, the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism, maintain and defend this truth, and they do so in precise, powerful, and comforting terms. All right. So they all believed this. So what happens to the unrighteous? Revelation 14.10. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This is, this is a final act of God, totally contrary to his character. So Isaiah describes it in chapter 28, For the Lord shall rise up on Mount Perazim. He shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon, that he might do his work, his strange work, and bring to pass this act, his strange foreign act. God doesn't want anyone to die. God is a God of love. But in order to end the great controversy, he will do it. But only after everyone has rejected him and said, we have no other king except Caesar. We don't want you. And if you say, I don't want you, you reject life because he's the only one who can give it to you. But there is a point beyond which divine patience is exhausted and the judgments of God are sure to follow. The Lord bears long with men and with cities, mercifully giving warning to save them from divine wrath. But a time will come when pleadings for mercy will no longer be heard. God will not force himself upon anyone. Ezekiel says, Sound to them as I live, says the Lord. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil way. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Seek ye the Lord, says Isaiah, while he might be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our garden, for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. This is the character of God. For the promise that he should be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through righteousness of faith. This is the third angel's message. How is it made manifest? Obedience to all the commandments of God. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of none effect, because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be of grace. To the end the promise might be sure 
to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also whom it shall be imputed. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. This is Bible doctrine. Voluntary, our divine substitute, bared his soul to the sword of justice. That we might not perish but have everlasting life. Said Christ, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up. These are all the texts that we have spoken about. He is truly God. He's the only one who can do it. Mankind was corporately in him. No man of earth or angel of heaven could have paid the penalty for sin. Jesus was the only one who could save rebellious man. In him divinity and humanity were combined and this was what gave efficiency to the offering on Calvary's cross. At the cross, mercy and truth met together, righteousness and peace kissed each other. As the sinner looks upon the Savior dying on Calvary and realizes that the sufferer is divine, he asks why this great sacrifice was made. And the cross points to the holy law of God, which has been transgressed. Can you understand why only Seventh-day Adventists can give this message to the world? Why no one else? Why was it entrusted to Seventh-day Adventists? Because of the relationship between law and grace. And if Protestantism has lost that relationship, how can it give the three angels messages? If Catholicism doesn't acknowledge the law of God but changes it, how can it give the three angels messages? So only someone who understands the relationship between law and grace can do it. Now early Protestantism had justification pat on. But they didn't have all the law right, did they? No. They stumbled on a couple of points. So only those who keep all the commandments of God can actually bring the three angels' messages. But if we bring it as the law... And the letter of the law, we miss the point. Because then we are something akin to Pharisees. But we are not, we're Protestants. In fact, by bringing law and grace into the right relationship, we're the only true Protestants that are left. This is a tremendous responsibility. This is why such a tremendous responsibility rests upon this church. We may commit the keeping of our souls to God as unto a faithful creator, not because we are sinless. So we're not great. Don't think we're the bee's knees because God has given us this message. We are sinners saved by grace. But because Jesus died to save just such erring, faulty creatures as we are. We may rest upon God, not because of our own merit, but because of the righteousness of Christ which is imputed to us. We must look away from self to the spotless Lamb of God who did no sin 
and by looking to him in faith we shall become like him. By the way, what are the most important senses on this head of ours? The eyes? And the ears? And I think we can just include the mouth as well. So what we hear and what we speak and what we see can transform us. So if we live for the world, we will incorporate the world into our system. If we listen to what the world has to offer and we watch what the world has to offer, it will infuse our being. So we must look unto Christ. And Hebrews 9.12, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. Absolute biblical pillars. That's why it's incomprehensible that Rome should sweep them all aside and even more incomprehensible that Protestantism will ask, where do we sign? Unbelievable. So who's standing between the living and the dead here? Adventists. Adventists are standing between the living and the dead. When Christ was upon the earth, the people did not believe in him. They rejected the Lord of glory, condemned and crucified him. But the heavenly vine had its roots on the other side of the wall. Death could not hold him. He rose from the grave and sits on the right hand of the Father, the majesty on high, where he can direct the heavenly intelligences, bidding them come to the help of every repenting soul. With the confession of the repenting, believing sinner, he mingles his own righteousness. That the prayer of fallen man may go up as a fragrant incense before the Father and the grace of God is imparted to the believing soul. We should think of what we are to Jesus and of what he is to us. That we may carry on a successful warfare against the flesh and against the natural tendencies of the mind. We are exhorted to gird up the loins of the mind and to do this we must settle the mind upon Jesus. It's the only way to do it. No other way. That brings me now, having spent a considerable time making sure that we understand that our doctrine is not vain. Our doctrine is Bible based. Our doctrine is reformed based. Right? Good. The Roman Catholic view of atonement. In contrast to the rest that we find in the completed work of Christ through the atonement of which the Sabbath is the sign or the mark, it can only be because it comes at the end of the creation. It implies acknowledgement of his ownership through both creation and redemption. Roman Catholicism presents another mark of allegiance which the Bible terms the mark of the beaks. So Seventh-day Adventism and Catholicism are thus irrevocably irreconcilable with regard to these issues. Catholic atonement takes into account the teachings of the fathers and blends them into a unified whole based on tradition. So it's not word-based. So let's just make sure 
I'm going to quote answers and tracts. This is the Catholic website that answers questions that you pose to them. So this is the official Roman Catholic Church telling us what they believe and what they think of Adventism. They say, Adventists also subscribe to the true Protestant shibboleths. Sola Scriptura, the Bible is the sole rule of faith, rule of faith and Sola Fida, justification is by faith alone. Excuse me, excuse me, they subscribe to the two Protestant shibboleths and the two shibboleths are Sola Scriptura and Sola Fide. I want to know what a shibboleth is. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you want to know too? Other Protestants, especially conservative evangelicals and fundamentalists, often attack Adventists on these points, claiming they do not really hold them, which is often used as proof that they are a cult. Now, why do other Protestants attack Seventh-day Adventists? Because of their position on the law. And they say, you're legalists. You don't really believe in salvation by faith. You are legalists because you say you must keep the law. But they don't understand the relationship between law and grace. And accepting it by faith. Because here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And we've discussed why you cannot separate law and grace. All right. However, along the spectrum of Protestantism from high church Lutherans and Anglicans to low church Pentecostals and Baptists, there is little agreement about the meaning of these two phrases or about the doctrines they are supposed to represent. And I like this statement. I agree with it. Seventh-day Adventism cannot change its views on the Catholic Church being the whore of Babylon. Who's writing this? <laughs> this is the Roman Catholic Church writing. Seventh-day Adventism cannot change its views on the Catholic Church being the whore of Babylon without admitting that it was wrong on the Sunday worship issue. It cannot admit that Sunday worship is not the mark of the beast without changing its views on the Jewish Sabbath. Seventh-day Adventism cannot cease to be anti-Catholic without ceasing to be Seventh-day Adventism. That's fascinating. I wish some of our brethren would read these statements emanating from the pen of Rome. Of course, there's no such thing as a Jewish Sabbath. There's only a Sabbath, which the Jews kept. So don't be confused by the jargon. But they claim that sola scriptura, the Bible and the Bible alone, and sola fide, salvation by grace, by faith alone, are shibboleths. So I have to look up what that means. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines it as follows. Shibboleth. An old idea or opinion or saying that is commonly believed and repeated, but that may be seen as old-fashioned or untrue. 
a word or way of speaking or behaving which shows that a person belongs to a particular group. A word or saying used by adherents of a party, a sect, or belief, and usually regarded by others as empty of real meaning. The old shibboleths come rolling off their lips. So, Rome is quite clear. It doesn't believe in sola scriptura. We've known that. They believe in tradition as well. But they don't believe in sola fide either. So, justification by faith is a Protestant doctrine. And when Protestantism compromises that doctrine by uniting with Rome, then it as verily denies that Jesus is their king, as the Jews did. Now, in the next lecture, we will see exactly what is Rome's position on justification, and we will see what Rome's position is on the atonement. And when we understand that position, we will be horrified to see that the joint declaration is a compromise which is so brilliantly written that even discerning Protestants have put their pen to it. May God help us as the bearers of the third angel's message, not to fall into that trap. Amen. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit amazingdiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.